0: Hi, everyone. Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know about my new on demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in their life and career. High achievers will tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to do this, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and get better alignment. You can learn more about the course at corevaluescourse.com. I hope you check it out at corevaluescourse.com. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome back to the Elevate podcast. I'm excited to share another episode from the Elevate archives today with Warren Rustrand, which was one of the longest and most popular episodes to date. Warren has served as the chairman or CEO of 17 companies, and he has served on the board of over 20 others. Warren's also a personal mentor, and more than anyone I've met in my life, is responsible for the development of thousands of other leaders around the world, inspiring them to contribute at a higher level. I know you will enjoy our conversation, which touched across many decades and many topics. So without further ado, Warren Rustan.
1: He asked if he could speak in front of us. Yes. And he said, Mr. Vice President, prepare to be president, because the smoking gun tapes, as they referred to, had been released by the Supreme Court, implicating the president of the United States in a felony cover-up. And I had watched Gerald Ford during his vice presidency, and he defended the president, he defended the country, he defended his party, and I was wondering if he'd ever thought about being the President of the United States during that period of time, because he had never indicated that in any way, to my knowledge. And um, he, at that point, turned and said, have the following seven people here for a meeting tomorrow morning for the transition team. And that night, there were airplanes sent out in various ways, and people were contacted. The next morning, those people that he named sat around a table, and they began the transition to the presidency, which was only two and a half days. Two and a half days later, he was sworn in.
0: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Warren, welcome. I'm excited to finally have you share your wisdom on The Elevate Podcast today.
1: Bob, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure for me to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. I I should have rebuttal time on that, uh, that introduction. It was very, very thoughtful and nice, way over the top. I thought it was a eulogy for a second. I thought I'd actually died.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll get into eulogies uh, at some point, but uh, <laughs> that was a tactic you used uh, the first time I met you. But can you start for the beginning for us and tell us a little bit about your upbringing? I know uh, it was formative in, in a bunch of different ways for you.
1: Well, it was. I grew up on an isolated farm in Minnesota, northwestern Minnesota, near the Canadian border. The nearest village of 160 people was four miles away. So it was uh, it was very remote. And um, we had very poor family at that point in time. My father had just started farming. And he was a very bright guy, an educated man. But because of the death of his mother and father, had been brought back to the farm to manage the farm for his siblings, 11 in number. And so as a result of that, I grew up, Working hard, learning how to uh, till the land, take care of animals at Three Sisters. And as a result of that kind of upbringing, I'd always felt like hard work was a basic ingredient of life. My dad was the hardest working man that I knew. But in the process of raising me, and I was his only son, so I spent a lot of time with him, working with the animals on tractors and so forth. And as I would sit on his lap as a young man, my earliest recollections were of uh, him telling me really interesting things. He would talk about the opera. He would talk about great books. He would talk about geography, talk about opportunity. And I didn't realize until much later in my life that he was preparing me for a life that was unlike his own, that he did not see me staying on the farm. And as a result of that, he broadened my perspective and my horizons in a very interesting way. And I've always thought about that in my own fatherhood and in grandparenting. You know, What's our role? I hope our role or one of them is to enlighten and to broaden and to create perspective and context. And so he did that for me in a very significant way. And then when I was about uh, 11 years old, he decided to uh, move to California, Southern California. He had become a successful farmer at that point, felt like he wanted to move his family to Southern California. So Uh, We moved out to Southern California, first settled in Whittier and went to school there and grew up there and was introduced to uh, sports, which I had never been able to play in uh, Minnesota just because of the hardworking nature of our farming. And then found that uh, there was an opportunity for leadership in junior high school and high school. And so I began to experience the things that my father was talking to me about. And I just thought that was so interesting and fascinating. In California, of course, the contrast between an isolated farm in, in Minnesota and then Southern California was just stunning to me. Um, I was introduced to something called surfing, you know, where you ride waves with a board, which was unbelievable, you know? And so I became a surfer, became an athlete, had lots of fun, enjoyed it. And somewhere in that process, someone came along and said, look, if you'll dribble a basketball and be a student at the University of Arizona, we'll pay for your education I'm not very smart, but I thought that was a pretty good idea, and so I headed off to the University of Arizona. I had the opportunity to be recruited by quite a lot of schools uh, after my last year of high school, and uh, ultimately chose Arizona for the opportunity it presented to me. And um, you know, it was it was a terrific experience. So again, it combined student leadership, academics, basketball, and an opportunity to meet the the lady who would become my wife. And uh, I met her the third day at the University of Arizona. And of course, being chiseled out of granite, really good looking, you know, very athletic, I thought surely she would want to go out with me. So I asked her out after meeting her. And uh, she said no. And I asked her again the next week. And she said no again. I asked her again the next week. She said no. She said no for 53 consecutive weeks. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty persistent. And I understand dedication and commitment and so forth. And so I had all of my training from sports and the farm and everything of hard work. I just knew she was a special lady. Finally, on the 54th week, I asked her out. And I happened to know that the guy she was dating was going to his parents' wedding anniversary. And so he wasn't going to be in town. So I knew she had an open weekend. And so I was just full of confidence. And I asked her out for the 54th time. And she said no again. And finally, just being stupid, I got down on my knees. I started begging. (laughs) I said, I've been persistent. I've been consistent. I've been a good friend. Just go out to dinner with me. She finally reluctantly agreed to go out to dinner, and so by 10.30 that night, we had decided it wasn't necessary to see anyone else, and we were married two years later while still at the university. And 55 years later, if someone had told me uh, I could be this happy and have this wonderful family and this wonderful life, I wouldn't have believed them when I was 20 years old. So it turned out just fine for me.
0: So the message there is persistence,
1: but good intelligence data as well, right? That's I think that's true, yes. I'm not so sure that she had good intelligence data, but I think I had some.
0: So you actually uh, were a decent enough dribbler um, that you you were able to play in
1: the NBA after school, right? Was that your first job? (laughs) Yeah, I guess it was my first job. I, I didn't set my goal in life to be a professional basketball player. That wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in business and I wanted to be an entrepreneur like my father. That was really my interest. And then I thought I wanted to spend some time in education, teaching and maybe even coaching. I was drafted uh, by the Golden State Warriors. They were then the San Francisco Warriors before they moved over to Oakland, where they became the Golden State Warriors. They, they changed their name some 47 years ago, but um, now they're moving back to San Francisco in their new stadium. And so I, I was drafted with um, some really good players, Rick Berry, who was National College Player of the Year, leading scorer in college basketball, and um, had a good opportunity. I think I was the 30th draft choice, something like that. And so I had a chance to, to do that. And that was interesting, but it wasn't compelling. And it's not something I actually wanted to do for a long time. So it turned out that uh, I pursued getting my amateur status back, which I did. I then went to play for the Phillips 66ers, which was the number one AAU amateur team in the United States. Today, the NBA has a development league. When I played, they had the amateur athletic union, was like the development league. And so uh, I pursued that. We had a spectacular team, and we played for the national championship that year. And following that season, I was asked to play for the United States team that went to the World Basketball Championships in uh, Santiago, Chile. And uh, it was a wonderful experience for me, terrific experience to represent our country. And during that time, I had the chance to, uh, we won the silver medal, didn't win the gold, but we beat the best team in the world at the time, which was Soviet team in a triple overtime, which was a great, great uh, effort on our part. So met some great people, had a great time representing the United States and uh, felt really good about my experience there. Then I returned to the University of Arizona where I became the assistant basketball coach and pursued a law degree for a while and then decided I didn't want to be a lawyer and pursued my uh, master's and started into a PhD program. So that's sort of the the opportunity I had at Arizona.
0: And then what, what transitioned you into the business world?
1: It was a unique opportunity that someone who had known my basketball career felt like I could turn around a company that wasn't doing very well and um, express some interest in me doing that. And while I didn't, I'd never taken a business course and I didn't have any business background except for observing my father, I just thought it was an interesting opportunity. And so I decided to leave coaching and leave my education behind at that point go ahead and do that. We were successful in turning that around, built a successful organization. It was in the financial services area. And uh, then decided to start a company, which we did. And that turned out to be successful. So we had another opportunity. Um, And then uh, I ended up serving in government after that. So uh, so I had a couple of experiences in my mid-20s in leading small organizations and found that there was a formula that seemed to work. And so, I uh, had the opportunity to pursue that.
0: And can you talk a little bit about that government was you you applied and were accepted to the White House Fellow Program, which is incredibly competitive. And, and I had the opportunity to, closely, to work closely with President Ford and other people in the White House. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into that and, and what you learned working with him and and about the stakes. <laughs> the stakes of the presidency became clear to you and the lessons you kind of took away about leadership on that.
1: Well, I appreciate that and stop me or interrupt me wherever you'd like because it can get kind of long and boring. But uh, so uh, I, I had led the second company and I was having lunch with some people. And in that mix of lunch, I was a retired four-star general who'd moved to Tucson, Arizona. And at the conclusion of our lunch, he said, have you ever heard of the White House Fellows Program? I said, no. He said, well, I'm going to send you an application. I said, thank you. And so I received that application, read through it pretty extensive, including writing a position paper to the President of the United States. And so while I was interested, I put it in a desk drawer and didn't think anything more about it. And a few weeks later, I was moving offices from one place to another, opened that desk drawer, saw that. And I noticed that the due date on it was a day away, 24 hours away. And I was intrigued enough to fill it out, did the best I could. I wrote a position paper, I think it was 200 words to the president, and then uh, put an envelope and sent it off, expecting not to hear another thing. And I was interested to see if I could compete with other young people around the country. The White House Fellows Program was established in 1963 by then John Gardner, head of human services, and Lyndon Johnson, president of the United States. And the purpose of it is to bring some of the best and brightest young people to Washington, work for the president. The vice president, the cabinet secretary, and so forth, and not be an intern and not shadow, but make an immediate contribution based on their life experience. And so I sent it off and about three months later I got a letter back that said, Congratulations, you're a national semifinalist. There are ten interviewing centers around the United States, and we'd like you to select one of those ten. And here are the dates for those interviews. And I think it was three days long. There were some 10 people on the interviewing panel, all of them distinguished Americans. And so I selected Denver, Colorado, and I went off that weekend to be interviewed. And when I got there, I said, holy cow, there's no chance I'll ever be selected. These people were just outstanding. I think we had a couple of astronauts, a Heinz Trophy winner, you know, authors, speakers, successful people. It was really, really terrific. It was, uh, I met some wonderful people. So uh, I went through the weekend where they interviewed us, uh, you know, two-on-one, five-on-one, 10-on-one for three days. It was very intense. And their purpose was really to find out how you think, what you think, what your core values are, what your thoughts about your future are. And then also, what do you know about public policy? They asked very specific questions about policy. And uh, the purpose of that was at the end of that three-day selection process was to select their first choice and an alternate. And so they marched us into a luncheon. And they disclosed their first choice, which happened to be me, me. I was stunned. And their second choice was um, a guy named Roger Porter, who was a Harvard business professor. And uh, Roger and I had gotten to know each other during that three days, like each other a lot. And so we stayed in touch. And I encouraged him to apply again the next year, which he did. And he was selected the following year. So then as a national finalist, there were 37 national finalists who were selected from these 10 centers. And we ended up going to a place called the Airly House, which is a diplomatic retreat in rural Virginia. No phones, no TVs. Its sole purpose is a negotiation center. And they did a full FBI field investigation on us before we got there. And so they had a hundred pages of background information from the time we'd started school until the present. So uh, the President's Commission on White House Fellows was chaired by a man named Dr. Milton Friedman, one of the great economists of all time. And every person of the 16 on the President's Commission were well-known Americans, exceptional people in their own field, who had given up a week of their time to select what would be less than 20 out of the 37 who would become White House Fellows. So again, we went through a very rigorous process, very deliberate, very direct questioning. And their purpose, again, was to see if we would fit well within the highest echelon of government, working for some of the most significant people in the U.S. government, and be able to contribute. So at the end of that period of time, it was a rough week, a long week. I felt surely I'd be washed out at that stage. They were going to march us into an auditorium the next morning and give us the results. And I wasn't sleeping very well that night. So I went into the auditorium really early in the morning, like 5 a.m., and I noticed there were two boxes there and one box was thin envelopes and the other box had thick envelopes on it. And the box with thin envelopes said, you're a really nice person, but you're not a White House fellow. Good luck with the rest of your life. And then the thick envelope said, congratulations, you're a White House fellow. And here are the directions for the next stage. And so I went to look for my name, of course, and I found my name on a thin envelope saying I was a nice person, but I wasn't a White House fellow. I just had enough time before the others came in to switch my name from that envelope to another envelope. So I was I was selected as a White House fellow. So I, I just want you to know that corruption actually works in government. So it's OK. So I so I became a fellow. And uh, and then I had to interview with the president and, and the vice president and so forth to determine it was a matching process. Who wanted me and who did I want to work for at that time? So it turned out I was to work for the vice president. And uh, the fellowship started uh, September 30th, I think it was, and, and of the year. And so uh, I was to work for a man named Spiro Agnew, who was Richard Nixon's vice president. Uh, shortly before I got to Washington, uh, you know, Spiro Agnew heard I was coming to Washington, of course, so he resigned. He knew the pressure would be too great for him. So, so actually, he had been taking money under the table since his time as governor of Maryland, and he decided to resign. So I was wandering the streets of Washington, a man without a vice president, it's a terrible feeling. But I hooked up with the uh, Secretary of the Inter- uh, Commerce, a man named Fred Dent, uh, who is an industrialist from South Carolina, a wonderful man. And uh, we were looking for things for me to do, and he said, well, why don't you co-lead the first ever executive level trade mission to the Soviet Union? And uh, I did that with the Assistant Secretary of Commerce. And we selected CEOs from different industries. Uh, IBM, John Deere, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Baldwin Tires, I mean, a host of big companies. And we took about 15 CEOs with us. To get ready for that, I took some foreign language training in, in Russian at the Foreign Language Institute in Washington, D.C. so I could open and close meetings and make appropriate comments and so forth. And then and then we headed off to Russia where we negotiated trade agreements. And out of that, one of the most famous trade agreements that came out of that is the Pepsi-Cola agreement with Russia to market Stolichnia, or vodka, Russian vodka in the United States, for rights to market Pepsi in the Soviet Union. So uh, there are other agreements that came out of that. And then we returned to the United States, and uh, Richard Nixon had nominated Gerald Ford, who was then the minority leader of the US House of Representatives, to be uh, his nominee for vice president to be approved by the Senate. And uh, I went and knocked on the door of Gerald Ford, whom I did not know. And um, I said, I'm your White House fellow. And he said, what's a White House fellow? And that's how our relationship started. So uh, we sort of of, uh, indoctrinated each other. And I was able to join him the day he was vice president, served the nine months through his vice presidency. And then, of course, on August 6, 1974, we were informed that he uh, would become uh, the president of the United States. And so it was really a fascinating time. And so I was in the White House, during the nine months of the Watergate scandal implicating Richard Nixon as president in a felony cover-up of a burglary. And it was a fascinating time to be there from, in a historic context because I learned so much about political power and the way succession works in this country and the peaceful transition that gets to be made. Yeah, It was a r- really amazing. I think part of that story was the fact that Richard Nixon was from Whittier, California, which is where we first landed when we moved to Southern California. In fact, he lived just a few doors down from him and his brother, Don Nixon, lived a few doors down from us as well. So I went to school with members of the Nixon family in Whittier, which was very interesting. So I'd known of Nixon for a long time. And uh, to see him step down as president of the United States was pretty amazing. So Gerald Ford became the first vice president who was never elected to be vice president. And then he became the first president to be placed in office without having been elected. So he didn't have the same kind of relationship with folks when they get elected and feeling like he had to serve them as opposed to serving all. And his only interest was in doing the right thing for the country. And he was a terrific man, wonderful family, very thoughtful, very bright. He was the first president who had a graduate degree from an Ivy League University had a law degree from Yale. He was an All American football player at Michigan, very well educated, very thoughtful, and had been in the Congress over 30 years as a representative from Grand Rapids, Michigan. So he was very knowledgeable. In fact, he was the only president who ever presented a budget to uh, the Congress and then briefed the press on that budget. He knew the budget so well, having been in Congress for so long and been on the Appropriations Committee and he actually answered detailed questions about the budget, which was really pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, that that would not happen today. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without the Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best in class towing capacity, available 33 inch all-terrain tires and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car the new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com elevate. So you ended up managing his schedule.
1: Yes. Yeah. So as appointment secretary, my job was to manage everybody who went in in and out of the Oval Office, his travel schedule, everything about his schedule 24-7. And so got to know him very intimately and very well. And uh, we inherited a scheduling system that uh, was pretty archaic because it was a reactionary scheduling process instead of a proactive kind of schedule. And so we changed that scheduling process. And then I now teach and lecture a bit on time management, time efficiency, and so forth based on that scheduling process. But it was an interesting time, and I had a couple of great learnings from a leadership perspective during that time. I actually probably had hundreds of them, but two stand out as we're talking today about. One, when he was vice president and the possibility of impeachment or resignation of Richard Nixon was becoming more clear, the Supreme Court was due to rule on whether or not Nixon was implicated in a cover-up based on the tapes in the Oval Office that had been recorded. And I recall the president, the vice president, getting a call one night from General Alexander Haig, who was chief of staff for Richard Nixon. And he asked if he could come over to see the vice president. He said yes. He came over. He asked if he could speak in front of us. Yes. And he said, Mr. Vice President, prepare to be president. Because the smoking gun tapes, as they referred to, had been released by the Supreme Court implicating the president of the United States in a felony cover-up. And I had watched Gerald Ford during his vice presidency and he defended the president, he defended the country, he defended his party. And I was wondering if he'd ever thought about being the president of the United States during that period of time, because he had never indicated that in any way to my knowledge. And um, he at that point turned and said, have the following seven people here for a meeting tomorrow morning for the transition team. And that night there were airplanes sent out in various ways and people were contacted. The next morning those people that he named sat around a table and they began the transition to the presidency, which was only two and a half days. Two and a half days later he was sworn in. So the
0: answer was he had he had thought about
1: it. He had clearly thought about it. And the and the lesson I learned in leadership, Bob, you and I've talked about in the past is preparation, right? It's always about being prepared. You know, success often goes to the prepared mind. And he was clearly prepared to do that. And the next morning when they met as a transition team, he was able to to detail the plans that he had been thinking about in the event that this happened. And so it's more than just knowing who you wanted as your top team. It was also knowing and having thought about what does this mean for this country and how should we successfully transition into presidency. Another interesting leadership story that I've shared with you is we were about 30 days into his presidency. And uh, it became apparent to me that, that this kid from Minnesota and Southern California wasn't as smart as, as experienced as uh, the people that I was working with at that time. And there were some just fabulous people in the White House who had an, had an effect on the government for the next 30 years following the Ford presidency. But people like Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Bob Gates, Colin Powell, Brent Scowcroft, Jim Baker. I mean, there were some really just talented, talented people. Uh, in and around the White House, as the senior team, and it was my good fortune to be able to interact with them daily and learn so much from them. But as I spent time with them, I came to the realization that i wasn 't, as I said, as experienced or smart enough or good enough and so I was afraid that I would make a mistake and it would become public knowledge and embarrass the president and humiliate the president and as a new young president, fresh in office, I felt like he needed the best opportunity to be successful, and i didn 't want to be that problem. And so I decided I needed to resign. So I prepared a letter of resignation. and We had a meeting of some of those very same people I just talked about in the Oval Office with the president. I sort of lingered after the meeting was over as people drifted out. And I said, Mr. President, may I speak with you? And he said, yes. And I said, Mr. President, and I recounted what I just told you, not smart enough, not experienced enough, not good enough. Now I'm afraid I'm going to mess up and, and it's going to be bad for your presidency and embarrass you. And I don't want to do that. And then here, Mr. President, it's my resignation. And I placed it on the desk in the Oval Office. And he looked at the paper, didn't touch it, turned his chair to look across the South lawn of the White House and the Rose Garden, and then turned back to me and said, Warren, the very fact that you've told me this qualifies you to be here. And the great lesson I learned was that by being honest, transparent, and vulnerable, he knew he could trust me. And I think that's a critically important lesson for leaders to learn because too often we don't appear that way. We would use other words to describe us. And uh, that was a huge, huge lesson for me as a young leader. And from that point on, I had a good relationship with him and with his staff and I had a wonderful opportunity to serve our country and uh, serve the president.
0: I want to loop back to one thing you said i don't want to i don't want to overlook the time management because i know that's something you took and you basically used the you know the same formula for how you manage the president's time to working with lots of leaders can you explain a little bit more what that looks like for you or how you teach it and and also specifically the difference between an open door policy and your door being always open
1: yeah so one of the things i learned by being in the white house and being around the president scheduling for him is that Every minute is critical. He's the most important man in the world. And um, he clearly has command of huge resources. And his decision making and the quality of the decision making is really critical. And therefore, how one uses time becomes essential. And probably I had always been disciplined in my own time, but I really learned for the first time what it meant to be effective and efficient at the same time. And those two words, I think, have to go together. And we'd inherited this sort of archaic scheduling system, as I mentioned. We decided to become proactive in initiating scheduling as opposed to reacting to people who wanted to see him. And so he and his senior team defined what were the most critical and highest priority items he wanted to work on. And then we would schedule based on that priority. So rather than reacting, and the president at that time probably was receiving 300 plus invitations a day for his time. And so we we could only react to a small percentage of that. And so rather than doing that, we said no to virtually everyone. And instead we were driven by the highest priority issues that he wanted to face. And when he came into office, we had a high inflation, high unemployment, a very unstable economy, things weren't working very well. And he made huge progress on that agenda in reducing employ- unemployment and getting inflation down, re-stimulating the economy because he had a high focus on that. He really could dial in on those issues. So that was particularly important. So learning that scheduling process and then developing that and utilizing that was one of the best things we did while we were in the White House, I believe. And so the notion that every meeting had to be driven for a specific purpose and it had to try to have certain outcomes and it had to be finite in its timing. Meetings didn't run over. Meetings started on time and they ended on time. And so that notion of efficiency and effectiveness became very important to us in the White House. And I think the president did that very well. And as a result of him doing it well, the cascading effect of that was, the people who worked for him likewise became very efficient and effective in their utilization of time. So I thought that was particularly important. What that's done for me as a businessman and in leading various organizations is to drive a schedule that has priorities and it's driven by those priorities. For example, generally speaking, there are four large buckets in our life, family, business, community, and self. Almost everything we do fits into one of those four buckets. And so as I looked at my life, I suggested to me, as just a person now away from the White House into the business world, I wanted to take those lessons and be sure and apply it in a way that would make sense for me. So I became much more efficient with my time because I established my three highest priorities in each category, business, family, community, and self. So I had 12 priorities I was always working on. And then under each priority, I would list the specific activities with a date by which it had to be accomplished in order for me to achieve that priority. So under any given priority, I might have one, three, five, twenty activities that have to get done by a certain date in order for me to achieve that particular priority. And what I found was I became very efficient with my scheduling and oh, by the way, I became much more successful. And I attribute that success largely to many things perhaps, but to by my ability to manage time. And one of the things that you and I've discussed and I've discussed with others is this notion that all of us as CEOs like to have an open door policy. And that open door policy means what? Well, anybody can walk through it. And typically for us, there are going to be people walking into our office every day. As soon as someone walks into our office, we acknowledge that person and we allow them to begin speaking to us about things. We are no longer working on our agenda. We're working on their agenda. And those time wasters can really hurt us over the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, and it can take a lot of our time. So, We established a process by which uh, when someone would want to come in and talk to me, I would give them one statement they would need to make about the issue to convince me that I needed to interact with them at that very moment, that it was so important that I had to do it at that moment as opposed to other issues I was working on. So people would craft those, you know, statements pretty carefully, and so they would come in. If I didn't want to react on that particular issue, I would say, you know, this is a really important issue. It's something I do want to talk to you about. And I have an opportunity at 345 next Thursday for us to interact. Well, the reality of what would happen is that they would leave the office. And by next Thursday, they would have already taken care of the issue. They would have resolved it themselves. There are on occasion real crisis, something that really requires my immediate attention or the leader's immediate attention. And you pay attention to that and you resolve that and you get that done. But they're few and far between. If we're hiring competent people, then our expectation is that they will resolve issues and they will solve problems. And they should have to interact with us fairly irregularly, not regularly. So, yes, you have an open door policy, but you put a qualifier on that in order to continue to work on your highest priorities. Does that make sense to you, Bob?
0: Yeah. And I think one of the challenges for people that they struggle with is I'm curious how you would, I know some people probably feel selfish about saying no, but struggle with this fact that, you know, it's either other people's priorities or your priorities. That's really where, <laughs> when everyone's coming to you, right, they're coming to you with with their priorities.
1: That's true. And it's it's part of the discipline in a culture that we have to have in companies, which we are leading, is the notion of we're hiring really good people. By collaborating with others, you can help solve problems. But By and large, you're the subject matter leader in your space when you're hired to do certain things, whether that's marketing, human resources, finance, whatever it might be. And we expect a high level of problem solving and decision making by the people we hire. It may be necessary to change those people from time to time if they can't do that. But if someone's always relying on the leader to make the decision, then the leader may just might as well be deeply immersed in the bowels of the organization all the time. Right. And my argument is that if you're doing that, you're really a chief operating officer, not a CEO. I believe the CEO is to create value, to scale companies and to set the strategy for the organization, hire great people and then move on. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in getting the product out the door or so caught up in the details of finance or marketing or, human resources that we lose sight of creating the broader world and developing that broader world, which is where is this company going and how do we create value for our shareholders? Now, that shareholder may be a single person or it could be a public company, but I believe we have to drive toward the highest and greatest value by using the highest and greatest use of the individual. And I think sometimes we get confused as CEOs about what our purpose is.
0: Uh, take it down even from CEOs. For the leaders that you work with who have large teams, what, what is the one or two things you need to get them to stop doing that they are doing that they shouldn't be doing as, as leaders of large teams?
1: Well, I think the same kinds of policy, right, which is the open door policy, which is time management, those things have to cascade from the CEO down through the organization. One of the things that is a danger to all corporations are these meetings that go on forever. Uh, This notion that uh, you start a meeting at 8 a.m., supposed to go to 9 a.m., and it's 10 a.m., and you're still in the meeting. Our view is that meetings start on time and they end on time. If we need to schedule another meeting, we'll do that. They start and end on time, and the reason is that whoever's in that meeting with me has a schedule they have to keep as well. And if I keep them over in a meeting for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, I've now disrupted their schedule. If I do that often enough in an organization, we may have three, five, 10 people, all of whom have a schedule that's been disrupted, all of whom become less efficient in their process. So I think one of the things that that I would tell leaders at all levels of organization, I certainly have in in the organizations I've lived, is meetings start on time and end on time. Schedules are meant for a reason. Agendas are there for a purpose, right? Don't have meetings without an agenda. Don't have meetings without a specific purpose. Don't have me people in a meeting who aren't prepared with that agenda and prepared to participate. So I think all of those things cascade through an organization in a way that makes organizations either more or less effective.
0: Most times less. Yes. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with Warren. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. When you started your business, I'm sure you didn't dream about all those admin tasks like drafting proposals and contracts and tracking down payments. Of course you didn't. And that's why you need HoneyBook. HoneyBook's an innovative online management tool that organizes your client communications, booking contracts and invoices all in one place. It makes it really easy to run your business better professional templates, E-signatures and built-in automation keep everything on track and make you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use, such as QuickBooks, Google suite, Excel, and MailChimp. And that's why it's the number one choice for client and business management for freelancers and business owners. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com slash elevate payment is flexible. And this promotion applies, whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to honeybook.com slash elevate for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com slash elevate. In 2004, Mike Zani and his partner started a search fund. A search fund is where you raise money with a leadership team already in place and then look for a company to buy. Well, here's what Mike learned the first time he bought a company. Bob, we were really pretty good at the strategy stuff, and we were good at the financial side of things, knowing what to pay for a company. But when we finally bought the company, figuring out how to get the right people in the right roles and managing them was really hard, surprisingly hard, and we sucked at it. So Mike and his team used the Predictive Index to help them fix their people problems. Then when they bought and ran two more companies, they used the Predictive Index again. In fact, they became so enamored with the Predictive Index that you guessed it, they bought the company. Yeah, we bought a
1: 60-year-old technology company.
0: I have to pinch myself. You know, I, I get to run a company that helps people solve their people problems, designing teams, hiring, inspiring managers. And when it comes down to it, almost all business problems come down to people problems. So if you're trying to figure out how to get more out of your people, I'd recommend you go to predictiveindex.com slash elevate and request a demo of their product. That's predictiveindex.com slash elevate. And we're back with Warren Rustan. So Warren, I wanted to get into one of the most influential aspects of your career as an educator, especially on leadership. And one thing that I've always admired about you and you speak about a lot is that you have such a clearly defined purpose and you've inspired family, friends, and the people around you to really lead similar purpose-driven lives and, and have approaches that are driven by values. So how or when did you define and articulate your values and purpose?
1: Well, fairly early on, some of the influence in me, of course, was from my upbringing on a farm, hard work, dedication, commitment, those kinds of things. Athletics played a big role in that because I found that the same things I learned on the farm, hard work, dedication, commitment, effort, all that played well in an athletic context. And I had a little success there. And so these are things that accumulate over one's life that where they are reinforced. Things that you believe in, you then execute, and then you have successful results, tend to reinforce the notion of that. I also have always thought that one needs to have purpose in their lives, right? And I, I think there are two ways of thinking about it. One is to have a life of impactful moments. Another is to lead an impactful life. And I think they're very different. I think we know that there are lots of people, and we're around lots of people, who have highlight moments in their life. That are, they stand out. They ran the football back 60 yards for the touchdown in the state championship game.
0: I was gonna say they're they intend to be from high school. And then, yeah, that's right, yeah.
1: that's right. And you know, I can look back and say, gosh, I had that one great game in high school basketball that defined me. But it really doesn't. All of these events accumulate to define our life. And some people I think lead lives of impactful events or impactful days where they, it's a good story and it's interesting, but it doesn't influence the balance of their life. And so they have impactful moments. I think there are other people whose lives are purpose-driven, who are driven by a larger philosophy, who are driven by key context, that really defines who they are, It creates a paradigm for them in their life. And it's this notion of knowing what your purpose is, and then living to that purpose every day, in every circumstance, every time. I think people who do that tend to have impactful lives. Well, who would we suggest? I think Mother Teresa was driven by a great purpose. She created an organization that spanned the globe to serve others. She was humble, self-effacing, self-deprecating. She was an amazing woman. My wife and I had a chance to go work in the Mother Teresa Center in Calcutta, India. I just led a group of CEOs to India. We'd had a great time, there were about 800 of us, it was spectacular, it was fun, and I was getting ready to pack and go home. Just before we had gone to India, we had sold a company, we had done well with it, I was feeling really cocky, I was feeling pretty proud of myself, full of myself. And my wife is the one who always brings me back down to earth and helps me refocus. And so as I was packing to get ready to leave for India, she said, well, we're not going home. And I said, what do you mean? I'm, we got to get home, right? We've got this money we got to spend. And so she said, no, we're going to work for mother Teresa for two weeks. The first week is the center of dying patients. And the second week is the center for adopted children under five years of age with special needs. And I was, taken aback by that, but my wife is brilliant and always right, and so (laughs) I uh, said, okay, so we went to Calcutta. And after holding people in our arms who were living their last minutes, hours, days of their life, and listening to their stories and their conversations, um, it became readily apparent to me that life wasn't about material things, and it wasn't what we might often get caught up in in our lives. It was about their purpose, their relationships with other people, their families, the notion of serving others. And then we moved from there the second week to work in this adoptive center, and we walked into a warehouse, and there were probably 5,000 cribs in this giant warehouse, all filled with children who were missing a leg or an arm or an eye or had a cleft palate or in some way had a struggle or a challenge. And there weren't enough adults to serve them, to hold them, to kiss them, to love them, to feed them. It was just very difficult, and we worked really hard there for a week and and came away again understanding essence of, of human behavior and the importance of just loving one another and knowing that these children may never be adopted. They may be in a circumstance like that for the balance of their life. And so it was a very humbling time for me, and it was very important for me to understand that. And I think that helped reshape and refine me in a way that tied me back to purpose, and that is to serve other people. And that is that we're here on planet Earth to make the Earth better, to make people better, to show love and kindness. And uh, we're caught up in a society today where that's not happening as often as it should. There are great acts of kindness and love every day that maybe don't make the news, certainly don't make the news, because controversy, disaster, catastrophe, Sells so much better in the media, but every day in my life, I find people—I'm sure you do too, Bob—that are generous, are kind, are loving, are fostering relationships that embellish and help one's life. And um, I hope, in some small way, to be able to say at the end of my life, I helped one or two people along the way, that I was maybe an influence in their life and for good, for positive things, and that that the legacy. If one wants to talk about lettuce, is nothing greater than just being kind and loving to other people and encouraging and being positive with others in their life so that they have a chance to go on to be successful and do the same thing for other people. So, those kinds of activities that I've had have constantly been reinforced. And I would tell you that I live with someone, my wife Carson, we've been married 55 years, seven children, 19 grandchildren, as you said, and she gets up every day. With a smile on her face just to serve other people and serves people all day long. Her family, our community, other places. She's well known in our state because she's led so many organizations, but it's just about kindness and love. And she serves as a great example. And as a result of that, our children are the same way and our grandchildren are the same way.
0: We have a framework of vision, intent and values. Can you, for a lot of people who are struggling to understand purpose or, or values. I think that's a helpful
1: framework. Can you kind of illuminate that? Sure. Thank you. Uh, a long time ago, as I was watching the very things we were just talking about, I was interested in how people define themselves. How do they figure stuff out? How do they figure, figure out where they're going? And as I observed these powerful people in Washington, D.C., I observed that all of them seem to have a vision for themselves, and as I got to know other successful people in industry and sports, it seemed to me that all of them who were at the pinnacle of their success had a clear view of where they were going and who they are. So as I worked with a framework that might develop that for myself, I came to three principles that seemed to resonate in the worlds that I was touching with very successful people. The first is clarity of vision, the second is certainty of intent, and the third is the power of values. Clarity of vision is really your purpose. It's where you're going, directionally where you're going. And I recall having a a dinner one night with some mountain climbers, and we were just talking about where they were going. And I asked one young man, I said, where are you going? And what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to climb some of the highest mountains in the world. And I said, that's great. And I asked the second young man, what is it you're going to be doing? He said, well, I want to climb the seven highest summits on the seven continents. And I said, boy, that's really grandeur. And I asked the third young man, what are you doing? He said, I want to climb Mount Everest by the time I'm 25. It was obvious to me that his clarity of vision was critical to his success. Now, that young man was Jamie Clark. And he climbed Mount Everest for the first time when he was 21. He climbed it again when he was 23. That also sounds like certainty of intent. <laughs> That's exactly right. So once he decided his vision of where he wanted to go, then having decided on Mount Everest, then he really became fell into the category of certainty of intent, and that is he worked every day and executed every day to achieve that vision. So what do you have to do after you have to decide to climb Mount Everest? Well, you got to say what route, who your climbing partners are, how much money you have to raise, what equipment you're going to use, where your base camp's going to be. All of those details around intent have to be really refined and determined. So once creating the vision, this is where I'm going, then working on it every day, processing it every single day, allows you a greater opportunity to be successful. And the third element, which is the power of values, that's what binds us together on the journey. That's how we agree to live together. Those are the values that we have in common. And that we exercise. That's the modeling that we do for our family and other people in our businesses, in our families, in our communities. People see us act and they know what our values are. I can talk about service all day long, Bob, but unless I do it, (laughs) nobody's going to believe it. I could talk about being kind, but I have to do that, right? So my values have to be out in front that way. I think that's the same as true of a family. Uh, For example, we had nine of us sitting around the table. And we determined that we wanted to have a vision for our family. And so we sat down and I put three by five cards in front of each person. I think the youngest child was about three, the oldest about 16, and the three-year-old didn't contribute a great deal. But I asked them, just put words that describe our family on these cards. And they would describe They put words like joy, happiness, beatings, floggings, you know, whatever it happened to be. And then we would then compare those words. Do we mean joy or happiness, beatings or floggings? And we narrowed it from about 250 words initially to about 50 words. And then we asked the family, well, who do you want to have do a draft of this first statement? And they selected me and our eldest son. So we went away and took these words, put them into concepts, and then came back with our first draft, of course, which was thumbs down. That wasn't it. And it was thumbs down for two or three months as we refined this. And we finally got it down to a single sentence with about 30 words, which defines our family. And they all went thumbs up. That's us. Those are our concepts. That's what we believe. That's how we're going to live. And when you come to our house and others come to our house, that vision statement is the first thing you see when you walk into the house. And by reading that vision statement, anyone who reads it will know what our family's about, what values we hold and where we're going. That's why vision becomes so important. And I think vision is different than why. And uh, Simon Sinek wrote a great book, Start With Why. I think it's a wonderful movement. I think it's helped people gain clarity and insight. I've gone through that process as well. But I think vision is greater than why. Yeah, I think why why is a little tied more to your values. Exactly correct. And vision is really about where is my life going? What is my direction? Even if it's a bit vague, Martin Luther King said one time, faith is taking the first step without seeing the entire staircase. And I think sometimes we have to directionally decide where we're going. And our vision may not be the same as our talents. It may not be necessarily the same as our values at that moment in time, but we can apply our values as we take the journey. So I think understanding those three pinch Bob, the people that I've gotten to know that have been very, very successful, they all fit into those categories. They have this clear vision of where they're going. They have certainty of intent because they act on it every day and their values are right. They wear their values very proudly and very loudly as they go about doing their daily work and life. And I think that's very important.
0: Is that what you were referring to, Bob? Yeah, exactly. And, and as a corollary, right, you talked about that we have some key moments of truth too uh, within our lives in terms of figuring these things out.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there are, um, we come face to face with ourselves in these moments of truth. And uh, these moments of truth are very powerful for us and very important, and they should redirect us or direct us. And I've had multiple moments of truth in my life. Where you come face to face with either life or death, different things that happen to you that alter one's perspective. Uh, a good example is a, a common friend of ours, I believe Ben Firth, who lives in Calgary, Canada. And uh, Ben is an outdoorsman, he's a snowboarder, he's a snow skier, he does all kinds of stuff. And Ben, as he tells the story, was heliboarding, taking a snowboard back into the, the deep powder and back in the country, they were dropped off. They, he and one friend were, were snowboarding down the hill. His friend was ahead of him and his friend had cleared the area as Ben came down the mountain and Ben suddenly realized he was in an avalanche and the avalanche consumed him. And, uh, you know, it was tumble, tumble, tumble. It was harsh. It was difficult and boom, it kind of spit him out at the end. His friend who had snowboarded down ahead of him rushed back up the mountain to get to him and he he found Ben who was in really difficult shape. His right arm was hanging by a single skin of thread that had been nearly severed and broken bones. He was in very difficult shape. His friend stopped the bleeding as best he could, knew he had to go for help, headed down the mountain. They were in some trees. Ben knew that a helicopter and rescuers couldn't probably see him and may not be able to get to him in the trees. So with one arm, he pulled himself over a mile into a clear spot where some snowshoers who were in the area happened to see him, gave additional aid, and the helicopter came and landed and took him away. And while he has very limited use of that arm today, he continues to have a very robust outdoor life. But he came face to face with the truth about who he was, what he was doing, what the purpose of his life was, what he was going to do with the balance of his life. And that clear thinking oftentimes is necessary for us to achieve what it is we want to achieve. And so I just think that, um, you know, that happens to us in different ways. I was getting on a flight in Los Angeles to fly to Australia, and I was feeling kind of achy. And that achiness I thought was a cold or something coming on, but I needed to go to Australia. Well, seven hours into the flight, everything in my body was shutting out. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't urinate, I couldn't defecate, I couldn't eat. Uh, my throat was closing up. But if you know that trip, at seven hours, seven and a half hours, you're there's more no than where halfway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nowhere to land, right? So you're over halfway there. So I was carried off the airplane by the crew and a friend of mine, Phil Scanlon, a good friend was there to greet me. And he said, man, you look terrible. And I said, well, I feel bad. And so they put me in his car. He drove me to his private physician. His physician said, tell me your symptoms, which he did. I did. And um, he said, well, I think I had what you have about three years ago in a place called Tucson, Arizona. And I spent three weeks in the hospital at Tucson Medical Center. Well, the irony of that was when he was in Tucson Medical Center, I was chairman of the board at Tucson Medical Center at that time. So he said, I think you have sepsis. And uh, he took me down to a disease specialist down the hall, confirmed the diagnosis. Now, sepsis has about a 73% mortality rate in the first 24 hours. I was 22 hours into this at that point. They put me in the hospital, and uh, I was sort of on a death watch for four days, but Phil Scanlon, my good friend, was there every minute of that time. Didn't leave, kept talking to me, kept me awake, wouldn't let me sleep, make sure I did, got the medication I needed. And I, we were able to host his entire family at our home uh, a year after that where we could thank him for being a big part of my being alive. And this notion was I was face to face. I was day to day, hour to hour with potential death. And while I got through that, it creates a thought process which reinforces our purpose, our intent, and our values and gives us the opportunity to make certain we're doing everything every day that we want to do and that's valuable to others.
0: That's an incredible story. You know, for all the stories I've heard, I have not heard that one. so i'm always I'm always amazed when <laughs> when you have new ones. Uh, it, uh-huh. The library goes on, which is why I wanted to make sure we we shared some of these today. But when we first really got to know each other, it was during a intensive five day leadership program that you led for entrepreneurs organization. And I know when I came into that program, I really thought the focus was going to be on the mechanics of leadership and how to manage and how to lead. But the first few days were, really about understanding ourselves, as I like to say, looking kind of in a big mirror. What is authentic leadership and why is it so important? And why do so many people struggle with it? Why do they struggle to just say what they feel or feel what they say or, or run a company or lead in a way that is actually
1: incongruous with who they are? No, that's a great question. I think uh, authentic leadership at its core is being the true person being ourselves in every circumstance, in every situation. I think the world hasn't always credited people with being authentic. Um, I think sometimes being less than authentic has selves better out in the world. Mm. I've always wanted to be the same person on stage as I am off stage. And whether that's playing basketball and having a great game and then going into the locker room, I want to treat my teammates the way they want to be treated i want to respond to the media the way authenticity drives me i want it to be real to people and and while i've struggled with that on occasion i hasn't always been have not always been absolutely 100% accurate and that. that's something i've really worked at in my lifetime and i hope that that people will see me as an authentic person and the reason i mention names and stories and take family members with me when i speak and so forth is to be sure that i'm being authentic and that uh, I'm not stretching things beyond the bounds of propriety. So I think there's this notion of being authentic, which is being vulnerable, honest, and transparent. And I think sometimes that's challenging because um, whether we're terminating an employee or we're making a sale or we're doing a number of things, the opportunity to embellish, the opportunity to make us bigger than we are or change one's perspective of us to accommodate the moment is something that's easy to do. We have to be very careful not to do that. I think authentic leadership is based on living principles that are acknowledged by you. And that's why I think vision, intent, and values are really important, and they need to be worn on our sleeve and put out in front. And so this notion, this idea, that we somehow have to change ourselves to be acceptable in the world is, um, I think, damaging to us. And I think we see that big challenge with social media. Today, we can create whatever profile of ourselves we want to on social media. And that's what's out there. That's what people believe us to be. And we often find that as that gets investigated and researched, that that's probably not true in many cases, that people, in fact, create a profile And then if they see it enough on social media, they begin to believe that's who they are when their real life is quite different than that. And so I think we have to be very thoughtful about who we're putting out there as you know, us as an individual. How do we put ourselves out there? What do we say about ourselves? That's why it's easy for me to talk about my own failures, right? I've had plenty of failures. I've lost a lot of money along the way, and I've made a little money along the way, and I've made stupid decisions. I've done dumb things as I've learned, as I've grown, as I've changed. But I think authentic leadership, if we really practice that, work at that based on principles, it'll govern our life in a way that's really important. I just think it's something we need to be alert for.
0: I think there's a progression though. Do you think that new leaders struggle with authentic leadership because, and this is true for me, so I won't hypothesize in general. So tell me if you disagree, but I've, as we've grown the company, I've seen this where, okay, so you start in something, right? Leadership and you emulate a bunch of best practices because that's a very logical thing to do that you see in others and people that you admire. But then I think eventually some of them fit and some of the shoes don't fit. And You either kind of own this amalgamation of best practices, which aren't yours, or you kind of take a step back and break it down
1: and really think about the type of leader that you want to be. I think that's true. And I think a lot of us do that because we don't know what we don't know. As we start into being a CEO, as we start into leadership, we may have read some things, we may have observed others, but we may not have completely fashioned who we are as a leader at that point in time. And that evolves. I think all of us evolve as both as individual people, but, but more importantly as leaders. And so I think we refine that. I think you're a great example of that. I think you're someone who started a business based on these best principles. And over time, you've been able to refine some, eliminate some, create new ones. And now I think you're an expert in the field of culture. You're an expert in the field of human resources. I mean, you do some amazing things and and have written and spoken about some really terrific ways of thinking about our roles as leaders that are different. And I think for the most part, the people that I've found who have been very successful leaders in almost every case, hear things, see things and act slightly differently than other people. Sometimes it's refining a body of knowledge which we know to be true, but sometimes it's creating that new knowledge that's really helpful and serves as a milestone for other leaders in the future. And I think you've done a great job of that. And these podcasts, your Friday forwards, the books you've written, all help us and illuminate new ways of thinking, which allow us to be more successful. And I think that's a real contribution that you're making.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, a phrase that I've become fond of recently, and I've been using in some of the speaking is this notion of just fly your flag, and what we do with our culture too. You know, we try to be really consistent and transparent about what kind of business we are. We are a client service business. We are fast-paced. These are our values. It's not for everyone, but if we can fly that flag and, and get the right people who that's what they're looking for, then it should be a good match. I, I always struggle with, a, with a, you know, the hyper-competitive workaholic CEO who just has a problem owning that and telling people that there's people like that out there. And they said, Hey, I am a competitive workaholic. If that, if that's what you like, and you're like that, like come work with me. But instead they say a bunch of other things that aren't really true. And then people come work with them and they realize that they are a workaholic and they do value competition and it's a bad fit. So I do think that if people just fly their flag, they will, you, you can't make everyone happy, but you will attract the right people and and the other ones will go find something that it's a better fit for them, either as an employee, a friend, uh, or
1: otherwise. No, I agree with you. and I, We've had a chance to turn around some companies. We've had a chance to take over some companies uh, that were struggling with the very notion of, of culture and people. And We found in every case that if we apply the principles that we hold to be true, and we're very open with that, very direct with that, that there's a self-selection process. There will be some people who won't be comfortable and want to leave that environment, and that's fine and we'll try to help them find their next opportunity. And there are people who, will, with whom that will resonate, and they will increase their efforts significantly because now they're in an environment where they're comfortable and they're happy. And we've been able to successfully turn around companies very quickly and drive very different results as a result of that. And I think that um, it's very important to fly the flag, as you suggest. It's very important to be, again, open, honest, transparent, vulnerable with this is what we believe, This is how we live our lives. This is how this corporation operates. These are the accepted values and principles in this corporation. And this is something that we all have to act on. And when we do that, I think we just, we get much better effort. We drive better results. We have happier people, more successful people. And I believe companies start and end with people. When we take over companies, when we run companies, we don't talk very much about profit and loss, revenue, net margins, and so forth. We talk a lot about people and who they are and why they're there and what they want to accomplish in their life. And we try to facilitate that in every way. And we find when we do that, that people end up being very successful in their own right.
0: Yeah. And and someone was asking me advice about this for having to sort out some muddied culture. And my my reflection of them, which was from my own failures and experience, was that once you take a definitive point of view, you will have Rather than some marginally happy people all around, you'll have some very unhappy people and some very happy people. And and that's just part of the process. But the unhappy people will actually say, oh, look, this is clearly what you stand for. As I always used to sports knowledge, like I'm a running back and this is the passing team. So I need to go find a passing team because I'm playing in the wrong system, but you are doing what you're saying. And so they'll opt out and you can it can be respectful. And like you said, you can help them find a new job. I think what drives people crazy is when you know, they're recruited there, being told it's a running offense, <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then find out it's a passing offense. I think they're fine if they realize, oh, I
1: picked the wrong team versus, hey, you sold me a bag of goods. Yes. And in the recruiting process, I think we have to be very direct and very honest so that we try to match that fit. And there are a lot of tests we can give. There are lots of little tricky things we can do to be sure we're on the same page. But in the end, the people that we retain and hire uh, have to be people who have the same overall philosophy that we have and execute in the same way. Because they're gonna be happier that way. And uh, that's particularly true on a senior management team because they That's the beginning of the cascading process throughout the entire organization. They have to carry that message. The thing I've also found, Bob, that's interesting, I think for those people who are uncomfortable in that situation, they're both overt and covert, right? They're the overt ones who are out front. They'll tell you they're uncomfortable. They don't believe what you believe. They don't like what you're doing, that kind of thing. The covert ones who are underground, who gossip or who walk out of a team meeting, will say, well, that'll never work. That's never going to happen. We aren't going to be doing that kind of stuff. They're more difficult to define, but finding who they are and either trying to convert them or allowing them to go somewhere else is really important.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, Reed Hoffman has written this book called The Alliance. I, I think we're past the time of pensions and people working at the same company for 10 years. And we just, we need to change the conversation about how people leave. You know, McKinsey has just been doing this so well for 20 years. And I feel like it gets overlooked. You know, when you want to leave, how can we help you? You're part of our alumni probably their biggest lead generation source is, you know, ex McKinsey alumni who hire McKinsey. They've always felt like, oh, well, if people are going to leave our company, let's make sure they leave on the, on the best way possible. But somehow that has been overlooked.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's true. And when we, when we make key hires, we, we're very honest with them. We say, look, you're not always going to be working here. You, there are going to be other opportunities that are going to take you away, but we're going to make you a better person by you being here. We're gonna teach you new things. You're gonna learn new things that are gonna be really helpful to you. You're gonna be a part of a successful organization. And if it, when it comes time to leave, we want you saying good things about our organization. We want you to be out in the marketplace, believing that you were treated fairly, that you had every opportunity, and that you were as successful as you could be in this organization. So we're trying to eliminate that whole process of people feeling bad when they leave an organization, either voluntarily or involuntary. Right.
0: Well, one of the words that I know you're probably proudest of uh, that you won a few years ago is, well, I think you were named Father of the Year. And I know people listening to this and all the different things that you've done and that you do and the companies in the business want to know the question, you know, how are you able to accomplish so much professionally while also being a present leader in your family? What is your strategy for making it all work?
1: It's, again, establishing priorities, right? So, My highest priority has always been family. So in the days past where we would use paper scheduling, I would take my schedule and I would write family activities in red ink, very bold red ink. And then I would write business, community, and personal stuff in pencil. What that suggested to me was that everything could be changed and altered with the exception of family. So... I would write down birthdays, anniversaries, parent-teacher discussions, sports schedules, everything that I could. And those would be my highest priorities. And then I would work everything else around that. Now, it's not perfect and you can't always do it. And from time to time, there are conflicts. But the signal that I needed to send to our family, because I believe it so strongly, is that family's most important. And there's a quote by David O. McKay that says, no success in life compensates for failure in the home. I think sometimes we're too willing to sacrifice our marriages and our children for material or worldly success. I think we have to be very cautious and thoughtful about that. That if I can raise, if my wife and I can raise together good children, if we can have a fun, exciting, terrific family, that for me, that's about as good as it gets. Other things will fall into place, career, accomplishments, material wealth or whatever. We, we can figure that out. But maintaining a close family is really important. And it was interesting when they announced that father of the year, the first thing when they came and told me I'd been selected, I said, I'm not worthy of this. I, I said, number one is you need to ask my family and I, I don't think they would vote for me. So I think <laughs> you gotta check with my family first. But I said, I'm, there are so many great fathers out there that I couldn't possibly be the one to be. And it took him several weeks to convince me to accept this. And in the process of doing that, we were able to raise a lot of money for a great cause, but, which was juvenile diabetes. But all of our children were interviewed. And this, these interviews were shown publicly at this large banquet, probably 1,000 people there. And each child was asked the same thing. What do you remember most about your father? And until they played this that night, I had not seen it. And every child, all of our seven children, using different words, expressed the same thing. The first, they said, was that he was always there. He was at my sporting events and at my recitals and at my parent-teacher conferences, and he was just always there. And the second was that the only thing he ever talks about is family. So we don't talk about business in the home. I don't take business calls at home. When I come home, my transition time from being a CEO to being a father and a husband is the time when I leave my office to the time I arrive at my home. That's my transition time. When I walk through the door of my home, I'm no longer a CEO in the eyes of my children or my wife. I need to be a great husband and a great father. And today, these days, I need to be a wonderful grandfather.
0: That's easier. You just spoil
1: (laughs) it. Yeah. So it's this transition, right? It's this, we have to move among and between different roles all the time. And the transition from being a CEO, being a business leader, to being a father and a husband is really important. And I think the better we do that and the more appropriately we do that, the closer our family is. And you know, from your own schedule, you have a very intense driven schedule and you also, you and I talk often about your family. And what a good job you do in your role as father and husband. And while we're not perfect at that, it's the fact that we pay high I want to attention. Check with my wife on that. <laughs> <laughs> we pay attention to it. We know it's there, and we work hard at it. And it's an imperfect state, but it's something that's critically important. And at the end of the day, it's like the patients and the dying people that we held in India. What are we going to talk about? Yeah, we had, I wish I had more money in my bank account. I wish I'd had another airplane. I wish I could have bigger boats. I you know, nicer clothes. What are we to No, we're going to talk about the relationships we've had that have defined our life. And I think that having a successful family in today's world is very challenging but very important. Yeah, there's
0: there's a quote that some I'm going to butcher it, but it it goes along the lines of what you said. Someone said it to me a couple years ago and it really struck me, but it was, I think it was, no man shall exceed his child's opinion of him.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: I'll get it actually right. I'll do the research on it, but it's, it's close to that. Yeah. So speaking of your kids, they, they have all gone on to lead in their own way. And I think how you manage your family is, is similar to how you manage the businesses you've been involved with. Could you talk more about sort of values versus rules in your family and when and how you used which? And I know, based on what you've said before, you leaned a lot heavier on values than rules, but I'd love to hear kind of how you think about that from, from managing a family.
1: Well, yeah, thank you. The, the, the greatest example of love that children will ever see is how a husband and wife treat each other. And so that's the first level, right? It's this notion of that our husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. Have to love each other and treat each other in particular ways to send signals to their family. The second is that we're not a big believer in having a lot of rules, but rather we stress values. And if we act in particular ways with other people and within our family, it'll create a very specific feeling and it'll create a specific culture, if you will, for our family. And so rules have never been a big part of our family. We talk a lot about expectations. We talk a lot about accountability to each other, to make each other the best we possibly can be to assist in developing each other's potential. We cheer for each other. We cry with each other. We do all the things that are necessary. And so it's always interesting because there are a lot of people out there talking about family and a lot of people talking about children and so forth. It always looks. It's always interesting to take the closer look, the investigative look to say, how is your family really doing? And um, And I think that's always interesting. It's the same that you know, I think you and I agree that as speakers, as teachers, we have to be the same on stage as off stage. We have to have the same value set, we have to be the same person. Because I think we send all the wrong signals if we're not. And so that's very important. So in our family of the seven children, one of whom is a foster son, Native American Navajo boy. William is his name, his website is William White Hair Weaver. He came to us when he was 12 years old, stayed until he was 23, at which point he went back to the reservation to learn weaving skills as his real mother was dying. And she taught him those weaving skills. And today he's one of the revered weavers in the Navajo Nation. And he has beautiful, beautiful things. And the very first thing he did, the very first piece that he did, the first rug, he rolled it up and jumped in his Jeep and drove down to our home in Tucson, Arizona. And gave it to my wife for being his mother during that period of his life. But I think that's that's a value set that's learned, and I think that's really important. So very few rules, high on values, high on vision and mission within the family, and then live to those every day. And when we do that, we don't have the same kind of challenges or difficulties we may find in other circumstances with other children and families. And we think that's... Uh, terrifically important to be able to build a cohesive, loving, kind family over time that builds a legacy that leaves behind of service to others. We like to say in our family, our motto is we do hard things. So whenever there's something challenging, our family rises to that challenge. We like that. And it's not about doing easy things. It's about doing the hard things.
0: I'm surprised it's not
1: we do hard things together. (laughs) Well, we often do them together. That's for sure. And whether that's going to feed the homeless at the men's shelter, uh, you know, two hundred and seventy-five homeless men, or it's moving a neighbor from one house to another, or it's all the little things that go into improving someone's life. And I think that I think when Robert Greenleaf in nineteen oh eight wrote the book Servant and first talked about servant leadership, as you mentioned early on in the podcast, that that's an important concept for families to know and understand that to serve each other is the greater good, even within a family.
0: And you've prioritized service and you've prioritized leadership in your family. And to what you said before, you know, making sure that, that we're walking the talk. So I'll, I'll let you brag for a minute. We, why don't you tell us a little bit about, not, not individually, but the type of things that your kids are, are doing now as adults?
1: Well, uh, four of the seven are CEOs of their own companies. And they're running companies, uh, as I have, great cultures with good vision, Good values, and they're all successful. We had two of our sons were professional athletes, professional golfers, and they're uh, exceptional athletes. But more importantly, they're terrific fathers. Our daughter, who's probably the best athlete of them all, our only daughter, six boys, is like her mother, phenomenal at service, phenomenal at helping others. And each one of our children has found success in their own way. None of them work for me. None of them have worked for me. We tell our children at an early age a couple things. Number one is they won't inherit anything from us. And number two is they won't work for us. And that just is our particular way of saying to them, prepare yourself for your role in the world. Don't depend on someone else to give you that role. We didn't want them to be successful because we were successful. We want them to have success on their own. That's what builds self confidence, self esteem self-image and uh, it's the fact that they have accomplished their own worth so now we have adult children who are doing well they're passing on these same lessons to their children and they've all all of our children married just exceptional people Um, six women one man have joined our family and uh, we live together on a common piece of property in Arizona Uh, it's a small farm within the city and uh, they've built homes there Our daughter recently moved away to Seattle with her husband for a unique opportunity with her three children, but aside from that, all of us live together. And so when I go home in that transition period we talked about, in our home, I'm going to have a few grandchildren and a couple of kids, and we're just all on the property together, living and working together and raising animals and having gardens and playing and having fun. Every Sunday, we have a Sunday afternoon at four o'clock, we have a family dinner when all of us come together. Uh, every Sunday and just uh, enjoy talking to each other, having fun with each other, playing, eating. We're a very physical family, so we're usually involved in games and crazy stuff. But so yeah, so our family is uh, a lot of fun. If someone, and I came from a family that was about 25 degrees off dead center, and maybe some of your listeners know what I'm talking about. It wasn't quite all there. (laughs) uh, But I married into a family that really was a terrific family. So a lot I know about husbanding and being a father and so forth came from that family and from my wife who'd had a good experience in that family. And so I had to learn how to be a father and how to be a husband and so forth, perhaps different than some. And so learning that was very important to me and then executing on that likewise was very important. So I like to think that we have a great relationship that that I have and my wife has a great relationship with our children. She's the most revered member of our family. We're clearly a matriarchal family. Whatever she asks our children to do, they do without question. They do without asking why. They just do it because she asked. She's an amazing woman. I've been fortunate to just hang on. We just celebrate our 55th wedding anniversary. And so for every anniversary, she gives me a a one-year contract. You know, I've been looking for a long-term contract my whole life. She won't give it. She gives me a one-year contract. And then at the bottom, it says, you're still on probation. So
0: there's not even an auto renewal.
1: There's nothing. I don't get an automatic renewal. There's no pay raise. There's nothing I get. You
0: know. Well, for anyone listening, it's clear that you're a talented storyteller, and there's so many more stories we could we could go on for hours. I'm, I know a lot of people have asked you, and they're surprised you haven't written a book yet. Is it in the works? Is that something you're considering? Should we be looking forward to that?
1: Well, I don't know if you should be looking forward to it, but it's <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, we're about five chapters into a book right now. A lot of people over a lot of years have asked me to do some writing about some of the stuff we've talked about today, Bob. And so I plan on doing that and hopefully I can use some good examples like you in the book, people who have found real success and and are doing such great work. So, um, I I think yes, by the end of the year, we'll have a book out and published and uh, we're working hard. at it.
0: All right. Well, we'll have you back to talk about it.
1: Well, it's really great to talk with you. Not only do you ask good questions, but, um, and this is not solicited in any way. You and I have had a terrific relationship for several years, and it's been an opportunity for me to watch you grow and change. And uh, the things you're doing within your company, within your family, and for other people resonate greatly with me because I think you're exhibiting the kind of values and behavior that are servant based. And I find that to be very attractive and very helpful to other people.
0: Thank you. It is, it is a work in progress. Uh, it is. And as I said, my wife and kids would be, and my employees would be happy to share that it is a work in progress, but <laughs> we're, we're working on it. So last question is, and, and you alluded this to this before, but I always find this helpful it could be singular or repeated, but what is a mistake you've made in your career uh, that you've learned the most from?
1: Oh, I mean, uh, we need another hour on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't possibly talk about it in less than an hour. First of all, I've made a lot of mistakes. Being an imperfect person, I've made some dumb mistakes. Uh, business-wise, uh, we misjudged an economic cycle and uh, in a short period of time, I lost uh, several million dollars by perhaps being a little bit arrogant, by perhaps not being grounded, uh, thinking we knew more than we knew, all that sort of thing, maybe not being as meticulous in our preparation. So I learned a lot from that lesson. That was very important those kinds of things. I think on a personal basis, anytime I've not been completely truthful, not been completely transparent, in almost every case, it's caused an issue or a problem. And so I've learned over time that I, by just doing uh, stupid stuff or not giving a complete story or account or by not doing something, and I suspect this happened mostly when I was younger, is that uh, it caused me problems and caused me difficulty. And so I hope I've learned over time to be more forthright and to be more candid and direct in everything that I do. So those would be among the thousands of failures I've had in my lifetime and things that, uh, that I learned. I, one of the things came from sports. There was a particular time when, um, and when I was thinking I was a pretty good basketball player and I didn't prepare as well as I could have for a particularly important game. And in that game, I didn't play well. My teammates noticed it, coaches certainly noticed it, and others noticed it as well. And I had, I had an interesting discussion with them and an admission with them that I would never, ever lack in preparation again. To give you a, a sense of someone who was really candid with me, I was going into one of my failure phases where after my senior year basketball year in high school, I'd won a lot of awards and been recognized and all that sort of stuff. I was being a jerk and I was being arrogant and I wasn't treating people as well as I should. And the wrestling coach at my high school, a man named Clint South, whom I greatly admired for his character and his worthiness as a male and a model figure for me, came to me. He was my high school civics teacher. And he came to me and in a very direct conversation and said, You know, Warren, you are being a jerk. You are being arrogant. You are being stupid. And if you continue to act this way, you won't have any friends. You need to change what you're doing. It was that simple and that direct for me to come to the realization that I was all the things that he was saying. And that was a very humbling experience for me. But I needed to hear that in the same way that I needed to go work with Mother Teresa's charities, in the same way that from time to time people need to say to me, Warren, you're not being true to yourself. And those are the failures that I, that I fear the most. And I'm glad that there are people around me, people like you and others, who can be very direct with me and keep me on the right path. And I'm grateful for all of those people.
0: Well, Warren, thank you for sharing your stories and your wisdom with us. You've used your experience to change many people's lives, including mine. And I know I'll, I'll be forever grateful for your mentorship and only can hope to to pay it forward in some small way.
1: Well, you're great, Robert. Keep doing what you do, Bob, because uh, you're influencing thousands of people and all for the good. And I admire you and respect you. It's been a great relationship and knowing you and I look forward to many more years of our time together.
0: Thank you very much. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Warren on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or any of them, I'd appreciate uh, a really quick favor. And that is if you could leave us a review or rating as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening right now on Apple Podcasts, all you need to do is hit the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down, and you can leave a a rating or review. If you're listening in your browser, you can go to robertglazer.com on the podcast link and we have a few options. So thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.